Welcome to the Westminster Chapel podcast. For more information and to support our mission to London and beyond, please visit westminsterchapel.org.uk. Good morning. Hi, everyone. I'm Heidi, and today's readings from 1 Peter 5, verse 5 to 11. All of you clothe yourself with humanity towards one another because God opposes the proud, but show favor to the humble. Humble yourself, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be alert and sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace, who call you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered for a little while, with himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. Um, let's pray. Dear Lord, just thank you for this morning. Just thank you that we can gather all together, um, being a family in Christ, supporting each other. Help us this morning to just enjoy the fellowship and also open our heart to listen to your words. Help us to be teachable. Um, may you really transform our heart and mind um, as we follow you, Lord. Thank you that, you know, um, you care about us and we can cast all our anxiety to you. Um, yeah, and we just pray for the Holy Spirit to be with us this morning. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. I have to say that's a first probably a last to be applauded, so, um, but it is a great honour and privilege to be preaching here at Westminster Chapel, and um, it's been a joy, especially in recent years, to uh, get to know some of your leaders and uh, have time together. Uh, that's been a special privilege. So I'm, I'm just delighted to be here, uh, and I'm delighted to be looking uh, with you at the, the final part of this book, uh, of what, of letter really, of 1 Peter that uh, you've been journeying through these past uh, weeks or months even, I'm not sure. So please keep that open at 1 Peter chapter 5, 1 Peter and chapter 5. I'm sure you know by now, if you've been coming here regularly and looking at this letter, that the dominant theme is one of suffering as a Christian. In the first century, the people that Peter was writing to were acutely aware that to be a Christian was to face opposition, persecution on a daily basis. And it's, that theme is replete through the letter, isn't it? Chapter 1, verse 6. You've had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. So there's pressure coming from outside but there's pressure from within as well because he talks about in chapter 2 and verse 11 abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul there's the pressure from within chapter 3 verse 16 those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ live in a world where 
men don't love the light. The Bible tells us men love darkness because it doesn't expose their deeds. And a Christian in the workplace, a Christian in the university, a Christian in a street, in a family, by living for Christ, exposes darkness. Not because they're doing that in an arrogant way, it's just the effect of being in the light. And it produces opposition, says Peter. Chapter 4, verse 4. Pagan neighbours and colleagues, friends, who heap abuse upon you for not joining in their reckless, wild living. You ever experienced that? The office party? Come on. Why won't you join in? And then when you won't join in, in getting drunk or whatever it may be, the abuse soon follows. Nothing changes. That's the world of the first century. It's the world of the 21st century. It feels, chapter 4, verse 12, like a fiery ordeal. It feels like pressure on every front. It's a battle. It's a fight. And if you're a Christian here this morning, seeking to follow the Lord Jesus, you know exactly what Peter is talking about. Its relevance to you is immense. And his main message in this in this letter is that suffering and opposition is just the authentic experience of the Christian in whatever century, whatever millennia, whatever part of the world we live in. And here in chapter 5, he's going to dig a little bit deeper into what, what's going on in the midst of that suffering. What's going on in the midst of those trials? He wants them, he wants us, to grasp that amidst all their experience of confusion, of bewilderment, of tiredness, that may be you this morning if you're a Christian. You've come here, you're just tired in the battle. You're weary. I mean, all your experience of that, what's going on? What is God doing? Well, he wants us to see that the Lord is actually doing something. He is at work in and through the suffering, the trials that you face. It's not a comfortable ride. But the question is, what is the Lord doing when the devil attacks us like a roaring lion? What does it look like? What does it feel like? What's the experience that we're to expect? Well, I want to put four things out in this very short passage of what that experience will be. First of all, it will be a humbling. Chapter 5, verses 1 to 4, Peter has been talking to the leaders, to the elders, and he's calling upon them to emulate the great shepherd himself in caring for God's people. Be an example to them. An example of humility, of sacrifice, of self-denial. Now this letter, as I'm sure you're aware by now, is fiercely self-autobiographical. As a young man, Peter was called by, from his fishing boat by the Lord to follow him. Peter was an incredibly proud man. Not proud in the sense of honoured to be called by the Lord Jesus Christ to follow him, but just proud. Proud in the sense of arrogant, boastful, just 
proud, full of himself, so unaware of his own weakness, especially that capacity, in spite of all his bravado, to cave in when he faced opposition, when his courage would melt away. He didn't know himself very well. Most of us don't as younger people, do we? The Lord's taking us as he took Peter on a journey. Do you remember Peter saying, if they all leave you, Lord, I'm never going to leave you. I'm your man. Some of us guys here, if we're Christian, we can identify with that. In our hearts, we want to do great things for God. We want to be bold for him. We want to be courageous. But the reality is something different. And yes, he takes out his sword and he lops off the ear of the chief priest's servant when they come to arrest Jesus. But Peter rebuke, but Jesus rebukes him. Put away your sword, Peter. You're going to stand by me, are you? I don't think so. Before the cock crows three times, you'll deny ever knowing me. And when that happened, Peter went out, it says in the Bible, into the night and wept bitterly. Though it didn't feel like it, God was at work. He was humbling this proud man. And then, of course, after the resurrection, Jesus encounters Peter on the seashore. And over a morning barbecue, he flags up that denial by asking him three times, Peter, do you love me? On the third occasion, Peter's, well, not sure if he's niffed, but he's certainly despairing. He says, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. You know all things. You know that I love you. But the humbling process has begun. And it's going to be a very long process, and it's, in fact, going to be a lifetime's process. Our natural pride and self-sufficiency, our fear of what other people think of us, none of that leaves us easily. It didn't leave Peter easily. But now... As we read this letter, written at the end of his life, what do we read here in chapter 5? Here he is, this old man has learned the lesson. God opposes the proud. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Why does he oppose the proud? Because it's the very heart and essence of sin. It's saying, shove off God, I'm in charge. That's the heart of pride. I can do it on my own. And Peter has to be humbled. How does he do that? How does the Lord do it? Well, by making us realize how innately weak we really are. Because he won't have his children self-sufficient or proud. He'll use disappointments. He'll use failure. He'll even use the opposition and persecution of unbelievers to draw us to himself. That's what Peter says in the beginning of this letter, isn't it? In chapter 1, verse 6. Now for a little while you've had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come to prove the genuineness of your faith. See, Peter's writing this from his own heart. It's, it's wonderfully autobiographical. He's saying, I am this person. And the Lord's spent my life 
humbling me. I wonder if the Lord has allowed trials and heartache, difficulties, conundrums into your life in recent days as a church, as individuals. I want to suggest to you, as the Puritans used to say, it's a divine mercy. It doesn't feel like that, but it's a divine mercy because it's showing the genuineness of your faith. Years ago, I, we had a couple go from Chesington to um, work as missionaries in uh, the Philippines, translating the Bible into uh, the tribal tongue of one of the large people groups there, the Talbuid tribe. Uh, and one of the elders from Chesington and I visited them at midpoint through their time there. And in the, in the Philippines, what you soon realize is that um, people love their T-shirts. Well, it's that kind of climate, isn't it? You, all you need is shortened T-shirts or a light dress if you're a lady. And um, one day, we were walking down the street, and this guy coming towards us. He's got this T-shirt. It says on the front, don't give up on me. Don't give up on me. So we're saying, maybe it's a pop group. Maybe it's the name of a pop group. What's it mean? Anyway, he walks past us. The answer's on the back. On the back it said, God's not finished with me yet. Don't give up on me. God's not finished with me yet. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So cast all your anxiety upon him. You see, pride is tied up with anxiety, isn't it? I'm anxious because I'm out of control. I can't control this. Cast all your anxiety upon him. Realize that everything is under his control and you are in the hollow of his hand, Christian. And he will humble us to bring us to our senses, but to bring us closer to himself to trust his goodness. But then look please in verse eight. There's a, there's a shaking that takes place here. Because Peter's pointing out that the Christian has an enemy, the devil. Yes, there exists a malign, invisible, spiritual world all around us. Spirits, evil spirits, the devil himself, who inhabit that hidden world. It's a real world. They exist above the human realm, but underneath the authority of God himself. They're malevolent, they're real. The head of them is Satan himself, who Peter describes as a, a roaring lion seeking to prey upon Christians. Well, all humanity, in fact, but in particularly Christians. It's all very good going to the zoo and seeing a lion, isn't it? It's all very comfortable. It's quite tame. It's lovely. There's the glass, there's the bars. Everything is safe. It's a different thing in the wild, isn't it? To be exposed to a roaring lion. In a war, one of the greatest coups is to convince your enemy that you don't exist. You've got nothing to worry about from us. And our Western secular culture wants to deride and dismiss any notion 
of the devil. <laughs> That's medieval. That's pathetic. That's superstitious nonsense. And yet it spends billions of pounds every year in, through the media, on films, through books, on stuff to do with the supernatural. And yet it say it doesn't exist. Dismissing the experience and the existence of the spirit world leaves you with huge problems. For how do you, how do you account for the patent existence of evil in the world? There's no devil. How do you account for a holocaust or a gulag or what's going on right now in many parts of the world where people are exposed to incredible injustice and suffering and tenacious aggression? How do you think that saying after a tragedy, oh, we, this must never happen again, we must make sure this never happens again, that's about the most ludicrous thing you ever hear? as if men and women had the power to stop terrible things happening in the world. Because the problem isn't out there, the problem's in here. It's pathetic. We need to call it for what it is. And it's shallow. As Western people, as a Western culture, we're so proud and dismissive. An Asian, African culture has no problem being aware of the existence of the spirit world. How dismissive of them to say, oh, it doesn't exist. No, the Bible is clear. There is evil in this world. There is a father of lies and a murderer, as the Lord Jesus called him. He's like a roaring lion. He prowls around looking to devour people. He hates the human race, particularly those who belong to Jesus. And the pressure that comes upon a Christian, all the lies, all the trials that they, this letter is full of and that they experience, they can all be traced back in one sense to the devil himself. It's trailed for us in that incredible Old Testament book of Job. Do you remember? It's a very interesting, I've just got it here, Job chapter 1. You need, if you want to, you can turn to it in your Bibles, but I'll read it to you. Job 1 opens with this kind of prologue. It's a deep mystery, this. One day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Bible tells us, you see, there's a spiritual world, and there's good, and there's evil. There are angels, and there's Satan, and he's real. And the Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, from roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. The Lord said to Satan, have you seen my servant Job? There's no one on earth like him. He's blameless and upright. A man who fears God and shuns evil. Huh. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied. Have you not put a hedge around him? His household and everything he has, you've blessed the work of his hands. So his flocks, his herds are, sp are spread throughout the land. But now, stretch out your hand, strike everything he has. He will surely curse you face to face. The Lord said to Satan, very well, everything he has is in your power. But on the man himself, do not lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. 
There in the Old Testament, this massive issue of suffering and the satanic activity that's behind it is presented to us. Here's the devil determined to inflict huge damage upon Job. In the fullness of time, with the arrival of the Lord Jesus, it comes into full bloom and the devil's activity reaches a new zenith, a new height. But praise God, though the devil inflicted terrible wounds and suffering on both Job and the Lord Jesus, though he tore at them, he couldn't devour them. He couldn't get them to deny God. He couldn't get them to curse the Almighty. He didn't exceed. Why not? Because there was one greater than him. Do you notice in that reading, all the time, it's what God is allowing Satan to do. He's not a free agent in that sense. He's under the control of a supreme, sovereign, almighty, all-powerful God. Wake up, Christian, says Peter. You're in a battle. You're in a fight. Suffering goes with the territory. There's an unseen, supernatural force of evil and you are not immune from his attacks. On the contrary, you are a prime target. Verse 9. What's to be done? You resist. Stand firm in the faith, says Peter. So there's a humbling going on here, there's a shaking going on here, but there's also a call here to stand firm. That's a very familiar New Testament idea, isn't it? Do you remember at the end of 1 Corinthians 15, that magnificent chapter about uh, the, the resurrection, about the new life, about the new body? And do you ever play that game of, um, if I wrote the Bible? No, probably not. You're far too sensible to do that. You're far too... Good, good, good men and women. But if you get to the end, verse 58, it's incredible. So, so Paul has outlined this magnificent view of a new body. And our bodies now being like a seed on a great day of Christ. It's going to be brought into a world that eye has not seen, nor ear heard, the things the Lord has prepared for those who love him. And he says, in the light of all this, of what God's going to do in the future, what are you to do now? Stand firm. Stand firm. Peter's saying the same thing here. Stand firm, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. In a fight, in a war, in a battle, what do you need? You need to be like some of those Ukrainian soldiers. You need to stand firm. God is not the author of evil. He didn't create Lucifer. But in spite of his rebellion, he remains a creature still. But he is only a creature. The creature can't become the creator. There's only one creator. That's God himself. So why has God not yet destroyed him? Why has he allowed the devil to be? What's going on here? This is a deep mystery, isn't it? That God allows this to happen... So that if you're a Christian, you will stand firm in your faith. Amen. It's a deep, profound mystery for us. I'm sure we've all got friends 
in the family of faith, men, women who've gone through terrible trials and suffering. And sometimes you think, Lord, how much more? Why is this? Surely not. What are you doing? What he's doing in the wonderful mystery of his love for us is putting on display what it means to have Christ in our lives. Because through those same people, something of the love and the grace and the power of God shines forth in a way that doesn't normally happen. I've seen that numerous times. I'm sure if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you've seen that as well. You see, just as God pointed out to Satan in Job chapter 1, that Satan, that Job was the real deal. So he says the same today. You've seen, you've seen my son, Josh, my son, Andy. Every Christian, the Lord points to and said, have you seen them? They're righteous. Not through themselves, but through my son. These trials come, says Peter. And he's obviously got the incident from Job in mind because he talks about it as a fiery trial. These have come so that the genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and result in praise, glory and honour. You see, what happened to Job... Job knew what was going on. He refused to curse God. Jesus knew what was going on when taken into the wilderness for those 40 days and tempted those three times by the devil. He knew what was going on. He was being tested. And the New Testament tells us in a remarkable way that Jesus was made perfect through suffering. Not that he was deficient in any area whatsoever, but as an example to us, this is, this is the prototype of the man of faith, the woman of faith. This is how it works. It happened to Peter. What did Jesus say to Peter? Satan has sought to sift you, but I have prayed for you. Isn't that amazing? Christian, as you face trials, as you face suffering, as you face that sense of spiritual battle, remember, Jesus has prayed and is praying for you. He's not lost control. God is still on the throne, as the old chorus had it, and he will do what? He will remember his own. No trials assault us. He never will leave us alone. Persecution. It's the norm in the Christian life. Beloved, says Peter, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal. It doesn't mean you're not the real thing. Quite the contrary. It means that you are the real thing. That story is told, isn't it, of that lad saying to the Christian, oh, if the devil would walk down here today, who would he attack, you or me? 
surely not you, you're the Holy Joe and so on. And the bloke said to him, no, he'd attack me. He's already got you. <laughs> That's the battle, you see. That's the battle. So what do you do? God is humbling us. God is shaking us. He's causing us to stand. And he says to us, look, look up. Verse 10. Do you see where all this is leading? Do you see what the, 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 the Lord is doing in the midst of all this suffering and all these problems that Peter faces, that the Christian faces? What does it say here in verse 10? The God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ after you've suffered a little while will himself restore you and make you strong, firm and steadfast. He's the God of grace. He's the God of all sufficiency. He will get you home. He will not let you go. I will not leave you nor forsake you. Because Christ has blazed the trail. Because Christ has lived the life of faith. Because Christ has resisted the attacks of the evil one. Because he has borne our penalty, the penalty for our sin. Because he rose from the dead and is ascended on high and is seated at the throne on high at the right hand of the majesty. Because of that, we are safe. That great theme in the New Testament, in Christ. The Christian is in Christ. God sees us in Christ. We have his righteousness. But we also have his grace, his power, his presence to live the life of faith, even in the midst of the most awful circumstances. Nobody, but nobody, can snatch you out of his hands. Though you feel, at this point, perhaps broken and wounded, that's okay. Because he's the God who restores and mends. Though you feel weak, that's a good thing. Because you are. But he is strong. Though you feel the attacks of the evil one, he walks with you through the valley of the shadow of death. And though you're not sure you can keep going, he will make you steadfast and strong. His grace is sufficient. He's strong enough, as Peter puts it in verse 11, to make you strong, firm, and steadfast. What's, what's God doing? And the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking to assault us, seeking to destroy us. He's humbling us. He's showing that we're the real deal. That you're actually a son and daughter of the living king. He's shaking us up because so often in our Christian life we wander off, we get distracted, we get attracted to the wrong things. He has to shake us out of our complacency. But he does that in order for us to stand firm in the faith, to put on display to the watching world the difference that Christ makes. It's inexplicable, isn't it, 
to the non-Christian. But it's unavoidable in its reality. And it's empowering us to look up. Look up. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And here's the wonder of it. 24-7, by his spirit, he's with you. He indwells you. He calls you to keep in step with his spirit. To walk with him as he walks with you. We've got to realize, friends, that persecution really is the norm in the Christian life. We've been shielded from it. It's been hidden to us in the Western world. But many of our brothers and sisters, as Peter talks about, in other parts of the world are suffering. And today, in North Korea, parts of northern Nigeria, in Ethiopia, many other places beside, they almost wouldn't need a message like this because they know the reality of it. We've been shielded from it, but we've not been the norm. The norm is a world is antagonistic towards Christ. There's a devil behind it, stoking it up. And that's the culture we're increasingly living in. But you know, the marvelous thing is that the church always grows in persecution. Always, invariably. If not in that generation, in the generation to come. Today, Korea, parts of South America, parts of Africa, seeing an incredible work of God going on. But the backcloth has been persecution. Maybe that's what the Lord's doing amongst us. So brothers and sisters, stand firm. And can I say, if you're not yet a Christian, it's great that you're here today. Because I want you to know the reality the reality is there is a malign, malevolent spirit, an evil one, a devil, Satan himself, who has blinded your eyes, who wants to stop you seeing and hearing about the Lord Jesus. He's real. Maybe you've evidenced some of that. I'm doing a one-to-one at the moment with a guy who's a recovering um, alcoholic and uh, got an incredible testimony. He needed no convincing, even before he became a Christian, of the reality of the evil one. He knew it. He says it was like a voice, it was a power within him that he was impotent against. But God rescued him. And God can rescue you. He calls you to himself calls you to look at the Lord Jesus who died on the cross to pay for your sin, for your pride, for for your arrogance, that you might experience his love and grace. What a wonderful thing if you took a step in that direction today. If that's you, why don't you talk to a Christian in this congregation that you know, maybe somebody who's brought you here. Talk more, talk seriously about these things. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for this wonderful letter. We thank you, Father, that in the life of this uh, man, Peter, we see all his frailty, all his faults, all his sin, and yet we see you changing him, and that gives us such encouragement. 
We thank you there's only one perfect man, the Lord Jesus, and he stands in heaven on our behalf. May we this day, Lord, in the face of evil, in the face of suffering, in the face of opposition and persecution, stand firm in him for your glory and for our good. Amen. Amen. listening to sermon audio from Westminster Chapel. If you'd like to partner with us in making disciples and sharing the gospel, please consider making a one-off or regular donation. Visit westminsterchapel.org.uk forward slash giving to find out how.